Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. It's 2021. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, are you excited to play some Magic in 2021? I am excited to play some Magic in 2021. You know, we were just moments ago, dear listeners, Ben and I were chatting about um, the four like major sets that came out last year, Theros Beyond Death, Ikoria, Corset 21, and Zendikar Rising. That wasn't a great year for Limited, Ben. I'm, so, I'm hoping that 2021 offers a bit more. Now, we had a lot of other sweet stuff like Arena Cube coming out when Best of Three. Tinkerer's Cube was a cool thing on Arena. We had Amonkhet Remastered and Kaladesh Remastered, which was gas. So there was a lot of other stuff, but I'm hoping that those those major sets give us a bit more to work with. Yeah, I am hyped about all the major sets they previewed for 2021. And I will say of the four from 2020, Ikoria was the only one that really grabbed me super hard. That I think is in my top three all time. Yeah, I think that's an all timer for me. I don't know if it's like top three, top five or whatever, but it was it was super fun. I think I think cycling gave that set a bad rap. I think there was a lot of other sweet stuff um, in that format. Companions being chief among them, even even post nerf companions have been good, aka Luris. Yeah, <laughs> my dear sweet Luris. Um, how about you, Ben? Are you excited for uh, for what 2021 has in store for us? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there are fire sets coming out. Looking forward to Kaldheim, Kaldheim, Kaldheim. Oh, are you are you asking me about pronunciation? Absolutely. Are you checking no, in I'm, with me? I am no longer going rogue. <laughs> um, I don't have any idea. My guess is it's Kaldheim would be my guess, but I don't know. Kaldheim. Is that like that's, you're gonna that's, call that's, like you're going to call Deem the worthy? Calling my friend Deem, yeah. All right, Kaldheim it is. Yeah, I don't know. But uh, as I'm saying, I'm not as confident as I was with Reese last week. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to 2021 magic. Also, can we talk about how Channel Fireball was like aggressively trying to dunk on me on Twitter? <laughs> what was <laughs> that can. about? I don't know. You've got a bad rap. You're the villain. You're the heel of the podcast. That makes sense. I'll take it. I, I'll take that role and play it with pride, Ben, for sure. All right. So we have a pretty sweet episode here, something that we've been talking about doing for a little while now. We're going to be doing limited level downs. And we know that folks always come to Lords of Limited to get worse at magic. So we're definitely going <laughs> to No, that. That's not really the point here. But we're going to be talking about perhaps some heuristics that folks are leaning too hard into or some lessons people have learned and need to walk back a little bit. And I think uh, we've got a lot of sweet talking points here to go through. But before we get into any of that, a couple housekeeping things. First things first is the Patreon page. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where you can go to give back to the show. If you so choose, show is, of course, always going to be free, but uh, we got some sweet perks over there. Access to the Lords of Limited Discord for any and all patrons, um, and then a bunch of other stuff for folks as they ratchet up their patronage. So a- anything you want to check out there over on the Patreon page is available for you if you're interested in giving back to the show. Um, we had actually had someone uh, reach out to me the other day, and they, they wanted to give 
the gift of the Lords of Limited Discord to one of their friends for Christmas. And so we like figured out a way for that to work out. And I thought that was a really cool thing that that was uh, something that someone was giving as a gift to their friend. Yeah, that is awesome. I also saw somebody in our email that was arranging a coaching session as a gift. Yeah, I had a, I had a coaching session with uh, with one of our listeners and two of his brothers. And so and he but the brothers didn't know that that was what the gift was. They were just like, hey, get on this Zoom call at this time or whatever. And it was fun to see like both of their reactions as they like saw who the fourth person on the call was. That was pretty cool. I got to feel like a little minor celebrity for an hour. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, and each and every week, we want to make sure that we shout out our new patrons. So this week, we are welcoming to the fold Bill, Conrad, Mike S., Mike V., Stephen, Thomas, Andrew, and Evan. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah. Cannot say thank you enough. These people know what's up. 2021, they're getting in early. Call teams just around the corner. You know, we always say at the best time to join the Patreon is when a new set's rolling out. Call time is here and you get a whole year of new sets. So get it on that Patreon while the getting's good. Yeah, absolutely. Shows now brought to you in part as well by Channel Fireball, channelfireball.com. They've been running some sick holiday promos, I think, that are wrapping up right now. But again, similar to the Lords of Limited Patreon, getting in on CFB Pro at the start of the new year. Best time if you want to, you know, make 2021 your year to get better at magic. I do think two of the best resources to do it are our Patreon if you want to get better at limited and CFB Pro for limited and constructed. There's sick articles from us as well as all of the CFB Pro constructed folks. And so make sure if you do that, when you head on over there, use code LOL, please, when you check out to let them know that we sent you over there. We would really, really appreciate it. To tack on that little idea about like 2021 having goals for magic, I think your answer to our question in our Q&A episode last week about like coming to coaching sessions with goals or ideas really hit home with a lot of people. I had a lot of folks when I like, you know, at the end of the month, I'll reach out to uh, people that I coach on the side and also people that I coach via our, our Patreon, via our, our highest tier folks in our coaching session per month from either me or you. And so at the end of the month, I'll like try and get some stuff on the calendar. And a lot of people then responded like, yeah, and what I really want to work on for this session is this. And I've not gotten those responses before. So that was really cool. And it's really awesome to hear people like now critically thinking about what they want to get out of those sessions. That's awesome. And it makes it way easier for you as the teacher, right? Because you can prepare stuff ahead of time. Exactly. Yeah. Then I have a like a super focused idea. And oh my God, we have to talk about this. Did you see that 17lands.com has game replay as part of their interface now? I did see your tweet about that. That is pretty awesome. So they haven't rolled it out to everybody. Viral Misnomer, the head of 17 Lands, was in my Twitch chat yesterday, and I was saying how amazing I thought that was. And he was like, yeah, we're not rolling it out to everybody. We have about 20% of people have access to it right now. We want to make sure it doesn't like overload our system or anything. So that hopefully will be getting to everybody soon. I'm really looking forward to having that not only as a tool for myself, but a tool that my students can use to like, because it's really hard to have gameplay decisions matter every time you're playing a game in a session. So now they have the opportunity to be like, oh, I played this really sweet game. Let me show you this decision. And they can just pull it up easily. So that is an amazing thing. And as, as we say, I mean, we're not like sponsored by 17 lands or anything. We just think it's an awesome tool. And if you are playing Magic Arena Limited, you should have 17lands.com installed on your computer. There's like no reason not to have it, I think. 100%. Uh, last little bit of uh, housekeeping I want to talk about before we dive into the meat of the episode here is what's the, what's the flavor of the week going on on arena this week and next week ben we've got grn which i solemnly swore back whenever the format was around the first time around that i was never going to do another draft of because that was the first time you could rank to mythic and i bet i did like 200 bot drafts of grn ranking to mythic because it was impossible to rank up because all you did was play boros mirrors all day um but 
it's back with human drafting, which is sweet. And Twitch chat wanted to see it. So I have done a few GRN drafts, been alternating between Zendikar Rising and Guilds. And it has been fine to come back to. I mean, that's a, that's about as good of an endorsement <laughs> as I can give it. Yeah, I think in general, the guild sets, you know, we have guilds of Ravnica this week, Ravnica Allegiance next week, the, the sets that limit your options of drafting 10 color pairs down to five color pairs, I think already sort of have a knock against them because they feel a little on rails. There's not like as much wiggle room. And, and really, even among those five color pairs, they're all sort of trying to do one thing. It's not like, well, you could be blue, black, this or blue, black, this. Like it's it's basically, well, you're just blue, black surveil. And it's probably a control deck, though I guess you can have some aggro decks, but it's hard to come together or whatever. Um, so, you know, we're not going to be doing any sort of you know, rehashing of those formats here. Uh, I'm going to point folks to our 50 takes episode for Guilds of Ravnica is episode 79. And our 50 takes episode for Ravnica Allegiance is episode 91. I think those are great starting points. If you haven't played those formats, that'll give you sort of a a quick and dirty look at the set. What's your sense of folks? I mean, I guess you've done a handful of drafts, one draft. How many have you done? I've done three drafts so far. What's your sense of in the draft and in the games, do you think you're playing against folks who are new to the format or people who like knew it when it was around two years ago plus or whatever and are now just coming back and like, yeah, I remember this set for sure. I would say the majority of the games and the drafts, I have felt like I've been in pods where people know what's up. They have been difficult drafts. Cards have not been going obnoxiously like other than Artful Takedown has been going way too late. Yeah, that's true. I have seen that super, super late. And I think you will get in that that position where like, you know, no one's in Boros and pack one. And so then, which I, I guess is pretty rare, but maybe no one's in a certain guild in pack one. And then you see good cards in that guild going around pretty late in pack two. But I think that's sort of the, the exception. I think most of the time people are going to find their way into those those five guilds in pack one. Right. I do think Boros is overrated right now. I mean, Boros was the thing to do in bot drafts because it was the best thing to consistently do in bot drafts. That's not necessarily the case in in-person drafts. And it feels like tables are really fighting hard over Boros. Yeah, I've done three drafts as well so far, and I have been Golgari all three drafts as a surprise to no one. But I do think <laughs> I do think Golgari, and, and to a certain extent, Selesnya, though, I think the best Selesnya decks are aggro decks, and then Selesnya is also a good home for multicolored good stuff decks, aka Glade of the Guild Pact. Um, but I think that Golgari is the best suited to combat both Boros and Demir, because I think it can grind against Demir decks if you get like Golgari Fine Brokers or whatever. And I think it has really good life gain and like early game and cards that are good to trade off and two for ones against the Boros decks. So I think I think Golgari is like for for where it's at in terms of position in the metagame and underrated. I think Golgari is where it's at for me right now. Sweet. And then I think just for Ravnica Allegiance, I wonder if it's going to have a bit of a like, you know, spider spawning and Innistrad style effect. Like, is everyone just going to be trying to do clear the mind Dovin's acuity stuff? I mean, I'm going to be trying to do the gates deck first. And then then I will shift over to clear the mind. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the Ravnica Allegiance is definitely a big step up from guilds for both of us, I would imagine, um, at least for me. I, I think Ravnica Allegiance is a super fun format. There's a, there's a lot of cool stuff. It doesn't have, quite have that problem. Like, you know, blue, white can be Dovin's Acuity. It can be high alert. Like, you know, the, the different color pairs have some different flavors to them. And then there's also just like a good gates deck, whereas in guilds that doesn't really exist. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Ravnica Allegiance. Yeah, me too. All right, well, let's dive right in here to our limited level downs episode. So at the top of our show notes here, we have outlined just sort of a little framework for how we're going to be introducing stuff. So a level up is, I think, a pivotal moment in a Magic player's career when a heuristic or a strategy clicks into place. Like, I don't know, the first time you learn 
bread. And I know bread is like outdated, but I do think that's like an important initial, like very, very early on in your limited life level up, right? Um, you know, you think about using your mana efficiently or quadrant theory. You know, I think that was a huge one for both of us. Yes, absolutely. I can very vividly remember listening to quadrant theory, which was my first episode of LR and feeling instantly like I was a way better magic player after the episode. Right. You know, you had that like Neo seeing the Matrix for the first time at the end of the movie style thing where like everything locks into place. 100%. But I do think that then that goes a little far sometimes or we misunderstand some things. So that's what we're here to talk about today. So we're going to talk about a level down, which is the walking back of a level up that you've leaned too far into or a level up that you have not quite understood correctly. Right. And I think both of those aspects of the sword are dangerous. I tend to be on the leaning too far into them. I think that's where you are too, just like as an outsider looking at your limited game. I think both of us have a tendency to lean too far into things. But also I see in the Lords of Limited Discord quite a bit, you know, things that we talk about on the show and then people saying, you know, we did X or blah, blah, blah. But it, they didn't quite understand it, I don't think. Right. It's just it's sort of like taking what we're saying maybe at face value without perhaps exploring some nooks and crannies or some some niche possibilities or some outliers, that sort of thing. So that's what we're, we're going to try and talk about today. Yeah. Looking forward to getting into it. So our first level up here is you need removal to answer your opponent's threats. Um, And I think that perhaps lines up with bread, learning bread as your acronym for how to draft stuff and just like how important removal is in a game of limited. But I think as folks are going to guess, the level down here is you aren't valuing threats high enough. And in in terms of talking about cards as being questions and answers, you want to be the one in a game of limited posing questions, not the one looking for answers. Right. I think I see this most frequently in Twitch chat when I'm streaming, I'll be taking a card like Grotag Bugcatcher over something like Vanquish the Week. And people will be like, you want the removal? No, I don't want the removal. I want the two drop threat that's very synergistic in the context of the format. Yeah, you know, Alex on limited level ups, and this is by no means a knock against our dear friend Alex and his wonderful podcast. Um, On one of his most recent episodes, he talked about I think it was on the like, you know, stop drafting like it's 2010 anymore. Um, But, you know, he's not talking, we're not talking here about like taking threats over, you know, the most premium removal. You think about blood chief's thirsts or royal eruption. We're talking about the the vast sweeping clunky removal that exists out there, like Vanquish the Week, like Synchronized Spellcraft, like Nahiri's Binding. Uh, You know, normally we might lump a card like Bubble Snare in there, but Bubble Snare is perhaps a cut above the rest here in terms of its flexibility in the format and synergy. But as a general rule, the more aggressive your deck is, and I think limited decks are leaning more aggressive. You know, someone the other day was talking about, I like slower formats. And I was like, what is it? What do we do? We get slow formats anymore. Like when was the last format where you didn't have to have a good curve where two drops didn't matter, even if you're talking about defensive speed, like aggressive decks or just like assertive decks or being aware of that, that just exists in limited. And the more controlling your deck is, if you do have a deck that's trying to go to the late game, then that's where you care about a lot more removal, right? Everyone cares about good removal. But when do you start to want the less premium stuff is what we're talking about here, right? If bread were a valid acronym these days, I think synergy would more than likely be ahead of removal in a lot of cases, maybe like on the line of R, right? It'd be R slash S type of deal. Right. And that R is those premium removal spells, right? And it's one to three cards, every format that are like the premium suite of removal at common. And then you want all this other stuff. And then you want the medium removal spells. And I think people have lower bar for the medium removal spells than we do. You know, for example, I would put pretty much any pacifism effect in that 
medium tier of removal. Now, that's not always going to be the case, but I think as a rule going forward, that's going to be the case. Mm-hmm. And then the, the effect is going to have to prove itself to us, much like Bubble Snare. You know, instantly after playing with Bubble Snare, and I was down on that initially, and then after casting the first one, I was like, oh, this is much better than my baseline for these type of cards in this format. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think if we look back at the entire year last year, Bubble Snare and Dreadful Apathy from Theros Beyond Death, those are the exceptions to the rule. Everything else, pa- actual factual passivism in Akoria was not a good card. Right. And removal spells that you have to pay five mana for, even if they're kill something dead, are probably not premium premium. Like you can only afford to put one to two copies of those in your deck. Right. I mean, the, the reason the Deadly Alliance was sweet was that like you could you could live that dream of being three, maybe even two mana. But if you had actual all clerics in your deck, no way to make it cost less than four. You know, I'm, I'm very happy to have the first copy. The second copy goes down in value quite a bit, I think. Yes. Next level up we've got here is you figured out how to draft the hard way and stay open and not get married to your first pick. I assume that you read the famous Ben S. Drafting the Hard Way article. Of course I did. I mean, I still think it's, it's one of, if not the most influential pieces of limited content in the past decade. Yeah, pretty awesome piece of writing. And I think essentially the crux of this is that you're trying to, when you sit down to a draft, not come with necessarily any preconceived notions about what you want to do. When you sit down, you're not thinking, I'm going to draft Is it, or I'm going to draft you know, Golgari, or whatever the case may be. You're sitting down and you're saying, I'm going to take the best card out of my first pack, and then in the second pack, I'm going to try to take the best card again. Hopefully that lines up with my first pick. But if it doesn't, and you, know, you keep doing that until you get down to about pick five, pick six, pick seven, and then the really interesting part is where you're trying to weigh the value of, you know, let's say you've got some blue black cards and there's a really good red card, pick six. You're trying to weigh the value of, you know, if I take this red card, I'm giving up some of my other picks, but I'm also getting future value theoretically in that the rest of this pack and in pack three, I'm going to be past better red cards. So you're trying to weigh that delta there between, you know, future value that you're going to get if you read the table right and end up in the open color versus the power level of the things that you already have. I mean, I think this is one of, if, if not perhaps the best skill that I have as a magic player is reading the draft signals and finding perhaps not the open deck, but an open deck for my seat. I think it's like, and I think this all stems from this article. Yes, I would agree 100%. I, I drafted this way my whole drafting career until we started this podcast and Ryan Sachs came on and talked about drafting with preferences, which was, again, a huge level up moment for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has really changed how I draft Magic the Gathering. Yeah, and so we can talk about that as a level up or a level down from the draft in the hard way level up, which is you have more agency over the draft than you think, right? You don't have to be a passive passenger in the draft and let the other seven players dictate what your deck is supposed to be. You can draft with preferences, you can soft force, and you can carve out a lane for yourself. And these are all important tools as well. Right. So I think in it, you know, the level down would be leaning too far into drafting the hard way and thinking that's the only way to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there are a lot of people in the limited community that do do that way too much. You know, that's the only way you got to stay open. You've got to read the draft. And there are more tools in the toolbox than that. Yeah. I mean, I think I've had a number of students come to me and say, I think I stay open too much or too long. And so you can identify that, but then it's figuring out how do you change that, right? How do you try and have more agency over the draft? How do you affect things? And I think it's all, I think first of all, it stems from tier lists and pick orders, right? Having an idea about the cards, you know, I think going back to our reasons versus rewards episode, but having an idea of the cards that are like worth holding on to for dear life, those AA plus bomb level cards that are going to drastically warp your pick order or attempt 
attempt to warp your pick order in that you're taking hits and power level to stay on color with that bomb. And then it's also identifying those reasons midway through the pack when you don't have a draft that's like worth hanging on to. And those cards that you're like, hey, I am going to jump ship here, or it's just way better for me to take this B-level card over this C-level card in the colors I'm already drafting in case that color is open, right? You're talking about that investing in the future or opening up future rewards for yourself down the road. Right. And then thinking about this on a personal level for myself, you know, if we rewind back to Ben from six or seven years ago, you know, I've listened to Quadrant Theory, I'm a good drafter. One of the things I really struggled with were sets that were high in synergy, right? Because drafting the hard way and, you know, using things like Quadrant Theory to evaluate cards, that doesn't lend itself to drafting a super synergistic format well, right? Drafting in that fashion tends to have you end up with a lot of really good, solid cards in your deck, like a lot of C pluses, a lot of B minuses. But those C pluses and B minuses don't necessarily work well together. And if that's you in a synergy format, you're going to lose to people that know how to lean into their color pair or get into the best color pair that has the most synergy. And that's definitely a skill that I lacked six or seven years ago. Yeah, I think I think back to drafting the spider spawning deck in original Innistrad, and I knew how to draft that deck, and that's highly synergistic, but I knew how to draft that deck basically because like it had been outlined exclusively. Like here are the important pieces for the deck. And so you could say, like, hey, I'm gonna take this card here, and hopefully no one else wants this other card and it's gonna wheel, and I know what the like four combo pieces are for the deck, and then the cards that are important to make me not die. But I couldn't do that on my own for other sets, right? I didn't have the tools to do that because as you said, like drafting the hard way doesn't give you those okay now here's the synergistic pick here's the now this pick buoys up this other card you've already draft that sort of thing i think cube really does that effectively like cube makes you think about drafting synergy and drafting a deck not just good cards right i would agree and so you know when you're doing this make sure that you're aware that you know staying open is great i think that should be your baseline but then you need to have other tools in your toolbox and i think even staying open with sort of initially biasing yourselves towards the best decks. That was That's how I would describe my current draft strategy. I know what the best tier of decks are. I'm going to try to get into those. If it doesn't work, I'll stay open, stay flexible, and draft whatever comes my way. Man, what a pro you are. Look at that great segue to our next point here. Level up number three here. You know what the best decks and colors are in the format, and you're going to try to steer your draft into them, right? I mean, I think... That's been the case for a lot of sets recently. You know, you think about Akoria, Mardu was king um, in M21, Naya was king. If we're talking about Guilds of Ravnica, I think the green guilds are definitely a cut below the other three. So you're looking at drafting Boros, Demir, and Izzet. And then I think Selesnya and Golgari are not very much sought after. But that doesn't mean you should ignore them, right? Right, 100%. When Selesnya or Golgari is open and you're the only one drafting that at your draft table, your deck is going to be head and shoulders better than most of the other decks at the table. Yeah, I remember checking out the like trophy section of the Discord back when these sets were out, uh, back when Guilds of Ravnica was out specifically. And all the Selesnya decks have like six rares in them. Like all the trophy <laughs> decks for Selesnya were like, well, this was clearly wide open and no one else was drafting it and I reaped the rewards of it. So we're sort of jumping the gun here, but the level down here is you steer too hard into the best decks or best colors and you're passing up a great deck in a tier two archetype. So you don't want to have blinders on. I'm only drafting white, red, and green in M21. I'm only drafting white, red, or black in Aquaria, right? You don't want to do that because the times when the Nuts Mutate deck is open for your seat or, you know, I don't know about, does this even exist? The Nuts Demir deck in uh, in M21? Maybe that didn't exist. Maybe that's not the best example. But even talking about Guilds of Ravnica, 
Ravnica this week. If the the nuts Selesnya deck or a good Golgari deck are open for your seat and you pass up on them because you're you know still trying to make Boros work because that's supposed to be good and best of one because it's the aggro deck, I think you're going to have a sad time. Right. I think this is the one that I'm the most susceptible to is leveling myself down here. Frequently, my first O2 drop in a format comes after, you know, like a couple weeks, two to three weeks into the format. And I feel like I really, really, really understand the format and I know what the best decks are and I'm always trying to get into them. And I frequently just pass up an opportunity for one of the tier two archetypes and I end up kind of forcing and I didn't realize I was forcing. And then afterwards, when I think back on it, I think, oh, yeah, I probably did that way too much. And that's why I ended up with this pile when I could have drafted, you know, whatever, a good green white deck in War of the Spark. Like I remember always jamming Grixis in War of the the Spark and just refusing to draft green white. And then, you know, finally, there came a point where I was willing to willing to do that. I think I have the exact opposite problem as you. I think I like will draft the worst archetypes often early in the format, have middling <laughs> success with them, enjoy them, and then finally about week seven come around to, oh yeah, this is the worst deck in the format. Like <laughs> that feels like that's my journey a lot of the time. Certainly for Akoria, that was my journey, definitely. And I feel like not not necessarily in War of the Spark. Like I was definitely down with Grixis being the best three colors in the format. But I also like really liked doing multicolor green, black, good stuff. And uh, that wasn't really a good thing to do. It was a good backdoor. Like th- those decks are often good backdoors. But yeah, I find myself in those early in the format definitely more than you do. Right. And I think this is especially important to be aware of if you're drafting in a pod of good players. You know, let's say you day two to GP when GPs come back in 2021. Huh? Huh? Wizards? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm <laughs> fingers crossed, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe we want to give ourselves a little buffer there. Seems like end of the year, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Could happen, depending on vaccinations. But so let's say you're in a pot of good players. You know, you day two, you're doing the the draft when the judge calls it over the loudspeaker or whatever. <laughs> That's my favorite part of the day two drafts. <laughs> I love how they're always British. The people who call the drafts are always British. Always British. But yeah, so when you're in these drafts with good players, you know, theoretically, everybody knows what the best decks are and everybody knows what the tier two archetypes are. And if everybody's trying to go for those best decks and you're one of the people that gets into a tier two archetype and it's wide open, you're going to reap the benefits. So just make sure you're especially aware of that when you're in high powered pods. I remember thinking about that going into day two of GP New Jersey for Theros Beyond Death of like, I wonder if I'm supposed to like soft avoid black because everybody knows it's the best color. That didn't end up happening. I was black in both of my drafts on day two, but it was in the back of my mind of like, is that something I'm supposed to be doing or thinking about because it's such a a game warping or draft warping color? Right. Next up here, as far as level ups, we've got concealing information from your opponent gives them less information to work with. So you should be trying to maybe, you know, hold a couple lands in your hand to make them guess or wonder what you've got. Yeah, or, you know, you definitely always want to wait to play your instant speed removal at the, like, post-declare blockers step right before damage, right? Your very last second to play that instant speed removal spell you want to do that, right? Because that conceals information from your opponent for the longest time. Or playing a land in your second main phase, which I have never done in my entire life. I tried <laughs> to, I tried to start doing that. Uh, I was like, I should start doing that. And then it wrecked me a few times. And I was like, nope, never again am I going to do this. I'm just always going to play my land first main phase. And that leads us to the level down here is you're getting yourself into trouble with some fancy play. You're overthinking 
this withholding information aspect of the game, and it's going to wreck you more than it's going to wreck your opponent. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a couple things that come to mind here. The first for me is holding lands in the mid to late game. This is one that I almost never do anymore because, you know, the first times that you don't play some lands out and then you draw a card draw spell and you can't double spell the following turn because you haven't played your lands, you're like, oh, this is stupid. Never again. I'm always playing my lands out always all the time. Right, and so what Ben's talking about here is you know, he's, let's say he's holding two lands in hand. He draws divination, he plays divination, and then he draws a spell that costs more or like maybe costs, you know, he's now got three untapped mana and he can play a land because he's been holding two, but he draws a five drop. And now he can't play that five drop the turn he casts divination because he's been holding lands. That is way more detrimental than it is for your opponent to be like, huh, I wonder if what they have in hand is a spell or what they have in hand is just a couple of lands. Right. Nobody's ever playing around the one land that you're holding in your hand on turn 10. It's just not happening. Just ever, do you, do you, like, just put yourself in the opposite seat. Do you ever, when you're looking at your opponent and they've got one card in hand and they've had one card in hand for a few turns, do you ever play any differently? Do you ever make any different decisions? No. It's, it's, I essentially think it's a land and if it's not good for you, I can't do anything about that, right? Like, and especially like the more your opponent is on the back foot or the the closer your opponent is to like, they have lethal or whatever, they're just gonna go for it. They're just going to do the thing they need to do, regardless of if you have one card in hand or zero cards in hand. Right. The exception would be if you have Tormenting Voice or Fissure Wizard, some sort of rummaging effect where you'd want to pitch a land. In that case, I think it's correct to hold the lands. And honestly, that's the mistake I make more often now at this point, as I forget I have that type of card in my deck. (laughs) Um, But otherwise, you should just play your lands out and have an empty hand if you have any sort of card draw in your deck. There's another one that doesn't come up that often because we don't often have like double pipped cards. But there is Beyond Death. We definitely did because of Devotion. But, you know, you you choose not to play out your second color of mana to quote unquote conceal information, right? You go, you're a black red deck and you go Swamp. And then the next turn, instead of playing a mountain, you play a Swamp again just to like let your opponent not know what your second color is or maybe they think your color screwed or whatever. And none of that actually matters, right? If you default to this, this is just going to trip you up more often than it's going to do anything effective to your opponent. So let's use Theros Beyond Death as an example, or even Cube, whatever. You decide to play a black one drop, like Hateful Eidolon from Theros Beyond Death. And instead of playing Mountain on turn two, you play a Swamp again, right? So your opponent doesn't have more information. But then let's say Anax Hardened in the Forge is in your deck, and then you draw that on turn three, and that's a one red red card. Now you can't cast that. And so if you like start to try and do these little tiny mind games and you think you're getting eking out 1% edge, half percent edge, I think this is just going to end up screwing you up more than it's going to end up screwing your opponent up. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. I think this also can come into play on Magic Arena a little bit, you know, with the the auto tapper and, you know, the auto passing system, you know, letting your opponent know if you have instance. My default is to, you know, if I have Chilling Trap in my hand to lead with Island on turn one. And I probably am still going to do that just because that's how I've always played magic. But if you really wanted to try to conceal that information from your opponent, you know, you could lead on mountain so that then it auto passes through your turn because you can't pass cast the chilling traps to just try to avoid letting your opponent know, hey, I have one of those one mana instants on turn one. There's a lot of people who are haters about like the information leaks from arena. And I kind of find that to be like a feature, not a bug. And I wonder there's probably not enough meat. Uh, on that bone for a whole episode but it's probably something we should talk about at some point down the road yeah i just generally don't pay much attention to it i probably should pay more attention than i do oh then i will i'll, I'll be the lead on that one i I, pay, <laughs> I am all about the like clicking fast or like seeing if it like i watch the like shift from 
the combat highlight to the blocking highlight to see if it like lags for a second. If my opponent has a trick or whatever, I'm all about that life. All right. Next up here, we've got our level up is drafting two playables from a single booster can be powerful, right? Like we talked about this earlier with the spider spawning thing, right? You peg a card for your deck and then a card that's likely to wheel or whatever to maximize your potential playables. So conversely, going along with that, the level down can be even though a card has a high likelihood of wheeling, that doesn't mean that you're supposed to risk it. And I feel like this happens a lot in normal draft, but even more in cube where there's like niche build arounds or in draft, like a niche build around that nobody else should theoretically want. And the problem comes up with, you know, for example, in cube. I fell in love early on with Wilderness Reclamation in the Arena Cube, which not a lot of people were onto, I don't think, as a good card. So theoretically, you should be able to wheel it. But the problem is if you draft, like you're going to wheel the Wilderness Reclamation, you know, you're taking all these instant speed effects to be able to leverage the mana on your opponent's turn, and then you don't wheel the Wilderness Reclamation, it's an absolute disaster. And the card is powerful enough that you should just take it, right? It's not your fault that nobody else knows that it's powerful. You should want the card that's awesome and good for your deck. Absolutely. And I think the other problem is, is that like, you know, especially in cube and especially early on in a format, right? Two, three weeks in when maybe pick orders haven't quite coalesced or or congealed or however you want to talk about it. You just don't know what the other seven people at your table are doing. You don't know what cards they value. You don't know if there, maybe there's someone else who listens to the podcast or watches Ben stream at his table and they're going to snap up that wilderness reclamation because he, they've seen him do it or heard him talk about it and they want to try it out. And so like, why risk that thing happening? You know, I think if with Ravnica Allegiance coming up, if you think about that Dovin's Acuity deck that like, if you don't die, you win deck. One of the most important things for that deck besides, you know, Dovin's Acuity was two copies of Clear the Mind, this card that lets you shuffle your graveyard into your library and then you draw a card. And so if you had two copies of that, you theoretically could never deck yourself, right? Because you would just shuffle in the other copy with the other copy. So you needed two copies of that. And that's in theory, a card that no one else at the table should want, right? No one outside of that loop-to-loop deck should want. So you shouldn't have to take it early. But like if it's pack three and you have one and you need that second one, don't be afraid to take it pack three, pick one even, even though it should wheel out of that pack and go pack three, pick nine. If it doesn't, your deck is significantly worse off. Yes. Take the card you want for your deck. It's just a, it's just a really, you just, when you say it so simply like that, Ben, it sounds obvious, but I, it really is enough a lot of the time. All right. Next up here, as far as level ups, we've got my deck needs to have a game plan, not only in the draft, but for each of my opening hands. Yeah. And I think the level down here is that focusing on a macro game plan isn't always the most important thing. Talk to me more about that. So I think perspective is really important in a game of magic. And I think once you see that bigger picture of drafting decks, not cards and understanding your deck's game plan, you can get lost in that a little bit sometimes. So first off, I think win conditions are thrown around way too much. It's not hard to win a game of magic, right? I think a lot of people will look at a deck and go, so what's the plan here? Or what's because I've heard that as a question I should be asking, or what's our win condition? Because I've heard that as a, a hot button question I should be asking. It's just like it's not hard to win a game of magic. You can grab a couple living tempests for some sort of blue-black control deck in Zendikar Rising, and that can win you a game of magic. Win conditions are abundant. Having a plan for how to win a game is is great. Usually that's going to be through combat. Like if it's some sort of other niche thing of like tempo aggro or whatever, however you want to put like an umbrella over it, that's fine. But it's not hard to win a game of magic. Winning game plans are not hard to come by and focusing on them is good. But win condition doesn't have to mean I have a Drana or a Leyline Tyrant. And I think there's also sort of like in-game things that happen where 
if you're on the back foot, you know, I'll have a lot of people ask like, so how do we win from here? I'm like, I don't know. I just don't, I want to, I'm focusing on not dying right now. (laughs) And then I'll get, once I'm stable, then I'll get to the, how do I win portion of the game? Right. And, And sometimes I do think it's like, well, you're, you have to like win in the next two turns. And so how do you do that? And maybe that's the puzzle you're trying to solve. But like, I think we get caught up in, well, I've learned that I'm supposed to have a deck with a plan. And what is that plan? And how am I enacting that plan each and every turn and each and every game. And I think sometimes getting lost in that macro game plan sauce is detrimental. Yeah, it's funny. You know, when you were talking about that, what was running through my head, I was trying to think about how I think about that. And I'm almost never thinking about how do I win, which maybe is a flaw. That's that might so be just rarely. a strict level up for you, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> I'm generally thinking about how can I maximize the power level of the cards in my deck, either through synergy or through raw power and like drawing my most powerful cards more often. Like to me, it's more about that. And then, you know, you play the games and even in the games, I think my general thought process is how do I maximize my cards? And then, you know, maybe towards the end of the game, okay, I'll win this turn or <laughs> whatever. But <laughs> it's funny, just what my thought process is versus what you were talking about there. All right, our next level up here is synergy can be more powerful than individual card quality. And I think that's something we champion quite a bit on this show. Yeah, I think that's certainly been a a big feature of our show the last couple of years. And I think the Synergy Theory episode, like writing that piece for CFB and then doing an episode on it really sort of solidified that as a concept for us and just going forward and tackling new sets. Yeah. So, So Synergy is king, right? You always take synergistic cards? That's that's right. Well, the level down here going along with that is passing a card that is intrinsically powerful because it doesn't fit your deck's plan or the plan you have for your deck in your head can be, you know, really detrimental. You know, if you're passing a B plus level card, an A level card, because you're a control deck and it's an aggro card or you're an aggro deck and it's a control card, you know, this comes up all the time with wraths, right? Um, Do you put a wrath in your aggro deck? Maybe, maybe not. But this can also just, I think, be boiled down to, you know, an M21, pretty famous for saying seasoned Hallowblade is better than Baneslayer Angel, right? And LSV came back and said, you know, hey, you know, it's good that you're thinking like this, but really Baneslayer Angel is a better card. And I think that's true. And I think he's right about that. And I think it's important to be thinking about how good Season Hallowblade is in the context of M21. But, you know, this a note for myself not to get too lost in the synergy sauce, as it were. Yeah, I think so. You know, you want to understand synergy and how it works. And that can make you feel clever. And I think Magic players as a whole like to feel clever. And that can just lead you to making picks that are too cute. Right. So let's say you're drafting a blue-black deck in Zendikar Rising and you have Roost of Drakes. And you go, oh, I'm supposed to take Cunning Geyser Mage because it has Kicker and that has synergy with Roost of Drakes. But Nighthawk Scavenger is in the pack. The one black, black, you know, flying Death Touch Lifelink has one, three, and then power is equal to one plus the number of card types in your opponent's graveyard. That card is like one of the best cards in the set. It's just intrinsically very powerful, much more powerful than Cunning Geyser Mage is, even though you have Roost of Drake. Since you can get lost in this, I'm just going to take whatever says Kicker on it because I have Roost. I'm supposed to maximize that card rather than just take this raw power level card. Right. It's a delicate balance to walk. And I think that really comes up a lot in the arena cube as well. Yeah. There were cards that were just rawly busted compared to the other cards in the arena cube. You know, something like the Scarab God versus something like Bastion of Remembrance, right? Like Bastion of Remembrance is fine. It's nowhere near the card quality of Scarab God. 
or, you know, there are a million examples like that. You know, a lot of cars that were high synergy, but low power when there were cars that were just going to win the game when you cast them most of the time. Right. And that was a lot of the stuff we talked about in the Arena Cube episode, just identifying what are those 20, 30, 40 cards in the cube that are just that that significant cut above the rest. And those are the important cards to identify in any draft format. When we talk about why there's such an importance of tier lists or understanding reasons versus rewards is that you you know those cards that are just like, these are the reasons to do a thing, or these are just the like the raw power. That's probably that's the fifth R right there is raw power, baby. Raw power. All right, moving on. Next level up here, I need to draft a deck not a pile of good cards. Similar in sentiment to the above point, but a little bit different, I think. Yeah, and the level down here is you lock into a certain deck too early in the draft because you're trying to draft a specific deck. Right. I see this one a lot in coaching sessions, and I assume if it's happening in coaching sessions, it's happening to the general populace, or I see it a lot in what's the builds in the Lords of Limited Discord. But you need to draft a deck, yes, but you don't necessarily know what that deck is until pack two sometimes. You know, it's not uncommon if you're a good drafter, I think, to be drafting two decks simultaneously that share a color. You know, maybe you're, you know you're blue and you're towing the line between blue-white and blue-red. And then depending on how those packs break or what you think your neighbors are doing, ultimately you end up committing to blue-red. But I think this is especially something that can happen in Zendikar Rising because it's such a tribal format is that you pick a cleric's card, pack one, pick one, you pick another cleric's card, pack one, pick two, and you say in your head, I'm clerics. And once you say that in your head, it's really hard to get off of that narrative that you're telling yourself. And I think you might be leaving equity on the table as far as reading the draft. And you know, maybe clerics isn't really what's open. Yeah, there are a couple, I think, mental shifts to make here that I want to point out. The first is shifting from I'm clerics to something I will say very often if I'm like reviewing a draft log or whatever, or we're, we're live doing a draft and we go clerics card, clerics card, or I had a draft uh, that I was reviewing with a student where they went like relic amulet into Umara mystic. And I said, it's very hard for me to imagine a situation where we don't end up wizards here, even with those two picks. But that is a much different thing to say than we're wizards, right? I'm, I'm leaving myself the possibility of you know, there there are things that could happen in this draft that would make me not be a blue-red wizard deck, and I'm just leaving myself open to that possibility. The other thing is, is to just make sure, like, you know, depending on how a draft goes, that you're checking in with yourself between packs, and I think between pack one and pack two is really important, because you can have this idea during the draft or during that pack of like, I'm blue-black. And then if you do a, just a tiny little check-in with yourself before you dive into figuring out what you're going to take pack two, pick one and review your cards and go, huh, I'm definitely blue at this point, but I really only have like one, I have one good black card worth playing and then three highly medium replacement level, perhaps maybe a role player style card in black. So it would be very easy for me to move off of black at this point based on that card quality. And that check-in I think is going to be important for you to not get lost in, hey, I'm locked into blue black here. Right. And I think the easy way out of that is, you know, you're thinking I need to draft a deck. I need to draft a deck. You just start spinning this narrative in your head that is I'm drafting this deck when it's not necessarily what you should be doing. Yeah. Last point I want to make here is something that I think folks also don't think about is like the importance of hashtag delay the decision and how to hashtag delay the decision. And one of those (laughs) things is like, let's say you've got uh, three blue cards, two black cards, one red card, and it's pick seven, right? So get get your six cards and you're choosing between a blue card and a black card. And let's say the black card is ever so slightly better, but there's a huge difference of making that pick be a blue card. And then you have four blue cards, two black cards, one red card. Versus you take the black card and then you have three blue cards and three black cards. 
Once you have three blue cards and three black cards, I think it's really hard. <laughs> it's much harder to move off of being blue-black at that point in the middle of pack one. Then if you go, hey, now I have four blue cards, so I know I'm blue. I have two black cards. I would probably like to be black at this point if possible, but I'm going to try and just like glide through the rest of pack one knowing I'm blue, and then I'll figure the rest out in pack two. Right. It's powerful getting yourself deep into one color. Yeah, for sure. And I think I think there's like that, that mental shift. There's a big difference of four and two versus three and three of a single color. Yeah. Next level up here is I know that deck whatever, fill in the blank in a certain format is good, and I'm going to try to draft it. Sort of what we were talking about earlier with the, you know, steering into what the best archetypes are. For example, I know clerics is good in Zendikar Rising. I'm going to try to draft clerics. Yeah, but the problem is, or you're going to get yourself into trouble when you convince yourself that you are a specific deck or have a certain strategy when you're missing key pieces for that deck. Right. This is one that I see a lot in the Discord, in the Lords of Limited Discord, where, you know, people in What's the Bill, they post their deck and they post a little blurb about their deck, usually like, hey, I'm Blue Red Wizards and I think I'm trying to do this and I'm considering these cards. What do you think about cuts? You know, it's not uncommon for people to type something like that in the Discord, which is great. They're thinking about their deck. But I think sometimes what happens when I read that and then I look at their deck, a lot of times there's a disparity between what the people think their deck is and what their deck actually is when I go to dive into the deck. And I'm like, really? I don't know that this is what this is actually happening here, you know? Um, And I think that happens because you have this narrative in your head of, you know, I'm drafting blue red, I'm wizards, but really you're more of a blue red party deck. And that might make you want to consider, you know, cutting these cards and adding these other cards to make the final 23. I also see this a lot when people are like, here's my blue green kicker deck. What are the cuts? And I'm like, why are you blue green kicker? What are what happened? There's a lot of my questions are what happened in this draft that made you think this was the right route for you? Because I look at your green cards and I don't see any powerful green cards. And I know that you should know at this point or in the format, I know at this point for sure that I'm not getting into green unless I see those like top tier cards in that color, those really good rares and like that handful of uncommons that make me want to draft that color. And so there's there's also this thing where I'm like, what what is getting you into this deck or what's making you think that you're drafting this deck? And you got to like check in with what are well, what are the key pieces for that deck? And if I'm not seeing them, I probably shouldn't be drafting that deck. Right. I agree 100%. And I think that boils down to, you know, how do you get away from this? Just make sure you're thinking critically about what all the cards are that are in front of you that you have in your deck, why they're included, and why you went down that lane that you did in the draft, similar to what you were talking about just now. But I think another thing that can happen if you're not careful or if you're being lazy about it, you know in whatever given format that white-black is clerics. And so you just put, you say, when you're that color pair, you say, I'm white by clerics or, you know, something that's not even tribal. Think back to M21. You know, you say you're blue red spells, but really you're more of a blue red control deck, like just not putting the base label for whatever that color pair is supposed to be doing on your deck and making sure that's actually what your deck's doing. And if that's not the case, what is your deck doing, you know? Or also maximizing particular cards. Like how many decks did we see that were like white green aggro or green red aggro with drowsing pteranodon, like two or three of them, but like two ways to give them four power or greater, you know? And so I'm like, well, you have Moke Piranhas in your aggro deck right now because you have recognized that Drowsing Pteranodon is a high pick and a really good card, but you have not then adjusted to take the cards that augment Drowsing Pteranodon or after, you know, maybe not seeing any of them through halfway through pack two, then adjusting how you're navigating this draft in terms of 
what my deck's game plan is. Preach. All right, next level up. I should hold my removal as long as possible to deal with a threat that I can't answer any other way. Yeah, I think, you know, in Sealed, this is very important. I think just in Draft in general, this is super important. You know, we think about older limited formats where creature quality wasn't as good, then it felt like you, you know, you wanted to wait for that one actual factual bomb for your Doomblade style thing. But I think the level down here is waiting too long to use your removal spell can diminish the power of that spell. Right. I think this is one of the bigger level ups for me from LR. They did an episode on removal and the timing of removal and when to use your removal. And it got me thinking about removal in a bunch of different ways that I didn't prior to listening to that episode. But I think you should think about removal as a tool that depending on what your deck is and how the game's playing out, you should use in a variety of different ways. Yeah, we did a a Kaladesh remastered What's the Play episode a few weeks ago, or maybe that was a month ago or whatever. And there was a situation where we had an unlicensed disintegration to fire off. And we were thinking about like, you know, is it better to add to the board first and then play the removal spell? Or is it better to play the removal spell now to just get this threat out of the way to preserve your life total? And I think those the answers to that question is going to be different based on the situation. But like that conversation opened up a pretty big I think gap in my thinking in terms of like, you know, the more aggressive I think I am, then the then I want to play my removal as like the last spell. I want to affect the board first. And the more defensive I think I am, or the more on the back foot I think I am, the more I'm inclined to just want to get that threat out of the way right now. Right. And there's a variety of factors here, right? How many removal spells do you have in your deck? If you only have yeah. two, well, you probably have to be more conservative with it. If you have six, maybe you can afford to fire off a premium removal spell on turn three to not take some damage. But there's other things that it can do as well, right? When you're an aggressive deck, you want to be trying to use your removal to push damage. You want to be, you know, have your two drop, have your three drop, and then on turn four, clear a blocker out of the way, you know, to push that damage. Yeah, I also think, and we're going to get to this in, in just a little bit for our last level up, level down, is, you know, mapping out your turns, I think will also let you know about when you need to fire off your removal spell. Like, there are times where I think, if I'm like, all right, it's my opponent has played a two drop, and I have Royal Eruption in hand, this is a very basic answer, but, you know, if I have three drop, four drop, five drop, six drop in my hand, and I assume I'm going to hit my land drops for those cards... I probably just want to fire off this Royal Eruption now, even though it's like not good, but like when am I, when else am I using this over the next four turns? So you also want to factor that into play with when you're going to fire off your removal. And then conversely, maybe you have this opportunity. Well, on turn five, I can play my three drop and then I'll have this other opportunity to play Royal Eruption and I can check in then if I want to play it. And I think, you know, there's a bunch of other things going on there too. Sometimes it's correct to use instant speed removal on your turn while your opponent's tapped out. You know, if you're worried about them having a pump spell or you're worried about them having a counter spell and you really need to get the threat off the battlefield, you don't always have to wait until the last possible moment to use your instant speed removal spell. Another one that really comes up, I think that a lot of people don't necessarily know about, is when to fire off removal in your opponent's upkeep. And the right time to do that is when you suspect that they have a way to interact with your removal spell. You know, maybe they've got three open mana and you're worried about a counter, or, you know, you've got, they've got a couple mana open and you think, you know, you've got a burn spell and maybe they've got a plus two plus two effect to cancel out your burn spell then you want to theoretically do that in their upkeep so that they have to spend their mana on their turn to blank your removal spell instead of getting to do it on your turn and then untap with all of their mana. Right, and the reason you do it on upkeep rather than like first main phase or in combat is like one, you deny them, let's say they don't have the thing in their hand and then they draw it, right? You deny them the opportunity to draw that spell to interact with. And then you also deny them the information of, well, I know what I drew for turn and so I know what I want to spend my mana on so I'll let this thing die. So you... you give them a little bit of 
denial, but also force them to use their mana on their turn if they have it. All right, last level up here. This is, I think, one that I fall into a lot. I should try to maximize my mana efficiency every single turn. I, I do think, I think they said this on LR at, at one point, is that like generally the player who uses the most mana in a game of Magic will win that game of Magic. Yeah, that's generally true, I think. And the level down that goes along with is that you do this blindly without critically thinking about why you're making the plays you're making. You know, if you just say, okay, all of, I have four mana, this adds up to four mana, I'm going to do that. And I'm supposed to use all my mana, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not necessarily the case. You know, spending all your mana is a great baseline, but it's not the end all be all depending on what's happening on the board state. You know, you get into the end of the game and you can spend eight mana, but it's going to leave you dead on board. You should probably fire off your two mana removal spell to not die. I mean, that's a fairly obvious case, but there are cases that are not that obvious. I think they come up in the middle of the game frequently where you want to use three of your five mana instead of trying to use all five mana. Yeah, for sure. And Well, I just think it, it comes down to, I think this is a really important level up. And of all the level ups here, I think this is probably one people don't do enough. Like I really think getting yourself to the shortcut of you can instantly know what's the most mana efficient thing for me to do this turn. I can play this five drop or I can play this three drop in this pump spell or this two drop in this removal spell, whatever, whatever the combinations are that you have have access to just like instantly knowing what's the most mana efficient thing to do. And then the step up or step down here is what are the reasons I wouldn't want to do that? What are the reasons that playing this two drop doesn't matter, right? It doesn't affect the board. We're in a board stall. So playing a two mana two, two doesn't matter. Or I really need to make sure that I hold up this counter spell for this key card because I know my opponent has this six drop bomb and next turn they're going to hit land number six, and I want to make sure that I can answer that thing before it hits the battlefield. And so I'm going to potentially light my whole turn on fire here because I know I need to hold up this counterspell for this particular bomb. But those questions you want to be asking yourself and aware of, you only get to those once you understand what the most mana efficient thing to do for the turn is. Right. So great baseline to just always be figuring that out, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we uh, during our What's the Play the other week, we talked about this sort of like what's the most aggressive, what's the most defensive, and what's the most mana efficient thing. And someone on Twitter actually talked about that as the ACE method, which is aggressive, conservative, and efficient, which I love. Um, and to, to, so we're, we're going to steal that. So shout out to them for sure. But I think that having that as a baseline, having those three as baselines, and certainly the efficient thing as a baseline is super important. And that I do think you have to get to first before you then can think about why, what am I going to do to deviate from this? And why would I want to deviate from this? Yeah, that all makes sense to me. Before we go here... I'm going to throw you on the spot here. What do you think your biggest level ups and your biggest level downs are? Like, what are you most guilty of leaning too far into? Oh, I am definitely most guilty of leaning too far into uh, like not not fancy play, but fancy drafting, like being too high on synergy. Like I'm I'm really good at seeing like how cards interact with each other, cool, tiny niche interactions, things that make like one card better than the other. But I lean too far into that. And I know that. And I think that's part of my brand a little bit. But it's also like I wouldn't do it if I didn't enjoy doing it. And I think I get lost in that sauce a little bit of like, here's a cute thing that I'm doing. And then it's like, yeah, but you're O2ing. Like, <laughs> you should just maybe you should be winning a little bit, you know? <laughs> okay, so that's your level down. What are what are your iconic level up moments? Like, what are the biggest things that like the thing like the aha moments that I've had? Yeah, I think drafting with preferences 
slash like carving out a lane, however you want to talk about it, like realizing that I have agency over my draft more than, because I think drafting the hard way or reading signals is something I'm very, very good at, but understanding that that's not something I always have to do was a big level up. And I think the mana efficiency thing, I think that's something I'm really good at. And I, that's something I've like taken to heart quite a bit over the past few years. Yeah, that's sweet. I think for myself, as far as level ups, the most iconic level up moments I think I've had are when I listen to quadrant theory and understood that and how to, you know, stay open, how to evaluate cards, that that sort of thing. Just when I started listening to LR, pretty much. My first episode was Quadrant Theory. And I just think that bevy of, you know, three months of listening to LR made me an instantly better magic player. So that's very clear in my mind. And I think the other one is similar to you, Ryan Sachs talking about drafting with preferences and, you know, realizing that, okay, I can identify the best decks and I can give myself the best chance to end up into those best decks. And I think that one stuck with me so much that that is also, (laughs) you know, my level down tendency is that I tend to go too hard for those best decks and I'm unwilling or unflexible sometimes to not draft, you know, one of the five tier one decks or whatever. I'm really reluctant to get into the tier two decks sometimes to the point of, you know, where I pass a very good card. You know, for example, you know, thinking GRN, I had a curious what you would do here. I had a pack one pick one that was venerated Loxodon, which is the four and a white four four with convoke. And whenever it enters the battlefield for each creature that helped cast it, you get to put a plus one plus one counter on those creatures versus lava coil the one in a red deal four to a creature or planeswalker i feel i feel like i'm walking into a trap because this does not seem particularly close to me i would take loxodon right and i think that's what most people would do and i took lava coil because i was thinking you know loxodon only goes in slesnir boros and of those two i really only want to be boros whereas you know if i take lava coil i'm setting myself up to be boros or is it where you know, both of those are great decks, and I'm really happy going into those. And Lava Coil is a super efficient removal spell, right? There's a there's a there's a whole level up, level down packaged into that thought process, right there. I know there is, right? And I think I got myself into trouble. I think the right pick is Venerated Loxodon, and I think I leveled myself thinking about you know steering towards the better decks. Yeah, I think a, a good if we're talking about level down as a positive thing here, I think one that you and I both have really taken to heart was our first one in terms of not valuing medium removal very highly. I think this is something that we're ahead of the curve on here at at Lords of Limited. Yeah, I think that's true as well. And I think we are championing that despite getting flack for it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You know, it's so funny you talked about uh, Quadrant Theory being your first episode of Limited Resources. And I, my first co-host of Limited Resources was John Laux. And he was like famous for multicolored nonsense. He was like snapping up all the dual lands and cube. And I think that has really influenced me as a magic player whereas i think you and alex brian wong was your first co-host yeah and he's like we're no nonsense no nonsense nuts and bolts spike like i just want to win and i'm gonna figure out how to win before everybody else so i can win even harder and like that's something that you guys are really interested in and i don't i don't have any interest in <laughs> i think that's very very funny yeah all right that's a great place to wrap us up thank you as always to salty pretzels for our intro and outro music make sure you go to listen thanks so much to channelfireball.com for sponsoring this podcast if you're heading over to cfb for any and all purchases uh singles boosters signing up for cfb pro for our sweet sweet written content please use the code lol when you check out to let them know we sent you there uh you can check us out on twitch and twitter sad news for everybody 
winter break is over for Ben, but hopefully we'll still see some evening streams over at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. You can see me during the day at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. So you're just thinking about this on a personal level for myself, fast forward back to, or not fast forward.